Well, Lord, our prayer this morning would be that you would give us the grace that we need to live out the words that flow so easily off our lips and that we would indeed desire you and a growing relationship with you more than anything, even gold and silver. Father, thank you for the preciousness of your word and and Father, help us to make it a priority in our lives and may, may the obedience of our lives speak of a great song of worship all week long. And now as we take our Bibles and open them, teach us, encourage us, and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have shared with you in the past how um, one of the things that my family and I enjoy immensely is the great privilege that we have uh, to avail ourselves to a beautiful house on the beach in Sunset Beach, North Carolina. And one of the things about that house is, is that it has cable television, and we don't have cable television. And um, so uh, Jonathan and I particularly um, enjoy watching our shows. You know, I'm an ESPN guy, Fox News, and Jonathan has a TV in another room, and in the kitchen he'll be watching, and every once in a while he'll holler, Hey, Dad, come here, you've got to see this. And he flips back and forth from the History Channel and all the World War II documentary, you know, the greatest tank battle that ever happened and stuff, to this show, I don't know which channel it's on, maybe Discovery or something. Some of you know about it, I'm sure. And it's called Dirtiest Jobs. Do you know that show? Dad, look at this guy. Look what he's doing. So if you don't know about it, it's this guy. And they've made a reality TV show out of it, of just following him around with a camera. And he just goes and he does work on job sites where people get really, really, really dirty. So he might be like inside some big smokestack, chiseling away at the residue buildup inside a smokestack, and they get filthy and have goggles on, and he's funny, and, and then maybe later on they're in some kind of suit, and they're down in a sewer, cleaning out a sewer or something, you know, and it's dirtiest jobs. Well, this morning, I want to invite you to turn back to 1 Timothy with me, and I want to, I want to lay a groundwork here in your minds that the very first thing the Apostle Paul asks young Pastor Timothy to do is a dirty job. Now, you need to understand that it's not the kind of dirty job that's on television. It's not where he's going to get dirty in his clothes and grease under his fingernails. But it is interesting to me that as Paul writes this letter, and do you recall that it is a personal letter from the Apostle Paul to his young pastor, Timothy, that he has been training, that he has raised up. He's left him in Ephesus. Paul has gone on to Macedonia, and he writes him back with concerns on his heart. And though it's a personal letter, it starts out somewhat formally, and it starts out surprisingly with a great challenge to young Timothy that I suspect he thought, oh, man. What a job. We use that phrase, dirty job, in a couple different ways, don't we? I mean it here as it is a most difficult job. It's emotional. It's spiritually challenging. But it is oh so important, as you will see, that the Apostle Paul, of all the things that he could write about, of all the things that he could have encouraged and challenged young Timothy, as Timothy is in Ephesus, the very first thing he wants him to do is to clean house. You see, something's happened at Ephesus. The leadership has turned. And evidently, by implication, it would appear 
that the men who are leading the church have begun to teach false doctrine. Now, I don't know if that seems like a big deal to you, but I guarantee it was a big deal to the Apostle Paul to the degree that when he writes this letter, he basically says to him, Timothy, you must go and get in their face. You shut them down. That's a dirty job. Have you ever had to confront somebody? It's always uh, tenuous, isn't it? Because what do we think? If I go up to him and say, hey, you can't be teaching like that, one of the things that we're going to expect to hear is, well, who do you think you are to tell me that I can't do this? That's how we think, isn't it? And so here you have this young pastor who has just recently relocated to this church. It's the church at Ephesus. The Apostle Paul warned a couple years before in Acts chapter 20. Do you remember that passage? He warned the Ephesian elders themselves that if you're not careful, wolves, he called them ravenous wolves, will come in from the outside. And even some among you, he was speaking to the elders, even some among you, this is Acts chapter 20 verse 28 and on, will depart from the faith Don't tolerate it. And so we have this challenge this morning that is the very launch point of our letter from Paul to Timothy. He gets through the greeting. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 1.1, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. And you know, one of the reasons I think Paul started out kind of formally like that is to credential himself to remind Timothy that he had the authority to tell him to go shut down the false teachers. Let's take a look at the text and then let's break it down. And I want to give you five essentials that the Apostle Paul called on for young Timothy to take care of in the church. We're using for our text this morning verses 3 through 7, but let's reread the opening remarks. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men, he doesn't name them, evidently Timothy would know exactly who he was speaking of, certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Verse 5, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these. What are these? A good conscience, pure heart, and sincere faith. They've wandered away from these and they've turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently Affirm. We'll just stop there this morning. How would you like to be young Timothy? And you're just getting settled in your new church. You've been appointed by the Apostle Paul, who has a great influence on the church at Ephesus. He's been there uh, for up to two years in the past, teaching them. He's grounded them. He's, they love him. Some years have gone by. Now there's uh, this opening schism in the church. They're starting to get some problems in the church. And what's happened is... Uh, Paul leaves Timothy, if you go to Acts chapter 16, one of the things, you don't have to go there right now, but if you go to Acts chapter 16, one of the things you'll see there is that Paul had this vision. And he was called, he saw a man calling him to go into Macedonia. And so he left Timothy at Ephesus. 
So it's kind of like the senior pastor leaves the associate pastor, and we know that he's intimidated, because remember what Paul's going to say later? Remember what he's going to say to Timothy in chapter 4? He's going to say, Timothy, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but be an example. It's also implied in the opening verse here, verse 3 of our text this morning, that the Apostle Paul's a little bit worried about Timothy ducking out on him. And he knows he's got a dirty job for Timothy to do right away. Confrontation is difficult, isn't it? Especially when it's embedded in the leadership. Especially if the leadership has been there for years. And then all of a sudden there's a turning, and then somebody has to say, you cannot say that any longer. Oh, my word. But it has to be done. The Apostle Paul and the writers of the epistle regularly called for the leadership of the church to police itself, to stick with the true gospel, to stick with the word of God, and to avoid what he calls here myths, endless genealogies, and meaningless talk. Well, let's dig in a little bit and let's see how the Apostle Paul challenges Timothy The first thing I want you to see that the Paul said you must do is, number one, he gives Timothy an urgent call for pastoral authority. There's an urgent call here as we begin for pastoral authority. Now, I'm not talking about power abuse. I'm not talking about a pastor-run church. I totally believe, and we're going to get into it later, that uh, we will see how God blesses a church with the dynamic of a plural leadership and a board of leadership, a group of men who are charged with the oversight. It's a very dangerous thing when one man has the authority over a group of people. That's not what Paul's talking about here, but look what he says. He says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, don't leave, don't avoid the problems, so that, here's the pastoral authority that was needed, so that you may, look at the word, In the NIV, command certain men not to teach false doctrine. Paul says there is a need for some authority in this church. It's why he reminded Timothy, I have the right to tell you this because I was appointed as an apostle under Christ Jesus our Lord by God himself. And I'm telling you, you do this. I think the apostle Paul meant business. Notice that he used the word urge. That's the idea uh, to beg or to implore. It's a little bit the word that we use in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. You know that verse? I beg of you, therefore, brethren. I, in the King James, says, I beseech you. I beg of you. In other words, he's not making a suggestion. He's saying, look, do this, do this. You have to do this. There's a sense of urgency about it. So the first thing Timothy receives from his senior pastor, Paul, in his church here, is, number one, an urgent call for pastoral authority. You have a job to do, and you must do this. Let's take a minute, and let's just think about who Timothy's dealing with here. The text doesn't tell us. Bible students look at this, and the commentaries argue that it's in the leadership because later in the book, one of the things that's going to happen is Paul is going to go into detail as to who is qualified to be a leader in the church. So one argument for the fact is that the leadership had a problem is that by the time we get to chapter 3, Paul is going to take extensive time and go into extensive detail to tell Timothy, this is the kind of leaders you're looking for. So there was evidently a problem in the leadership. The other thing is, he was, com- he was to command them not to teach. 
that they were no longer to teach. And so they were the ones who were in positions that were allowed to teach in the church. And in the early church, no doubt, that included the eldership and the leadership, the the upper echelon of the people who were supposed to be the mature leaders in the church. Another reason that they argued that this was probably leadership, he's going to go into detail on their leadership qualities, they're the ones who are teaching, but the apostle Paul is telling Timothy, you do this, and the idea is that there was no one else in the church that was going to do it because the leadership itself had a problem. And so it's likely that young Timothy had a real dirty job on his hands. He had to call an elder meeting, and he had to get in their face with the pastoral authority that God gave him. I'm confident that he did it lovingly, that he did it gracefully, and that he uh, did it in the name of Christ. But as we read earlier, uh, where Jude uh, spoke strongly, he condemned those men. There is strong language that's used. In fact, let's see what else happens here. Not only is this an urgent call for pastoral authority, but secondly, notice in our text that it is an urgent call for doctrinal purity. It's an urgent call for doctrinal purity. Look, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command, there's the pastoral authority needed, command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. It's an urgent call for doctrinal purity. Evidently what had happened, and we don't know, and Bible students debate, okay, what is he talking about? This myths and endless genealogies, what is that? He's going to say later on that they were bickering over the law and how to use the law, and next week we'll get into that in the rest of the passage. So it's possible that somehow, somewhat like the church in Galatia, they had turned away from a pure gospel and they were implementing aspects of the law that turned into nothing other than a works salvation. I think that the choice of the language here, though, suggests that it could have been all kinds of things. There were, uh, Bible scholars point out, that there were early first century writings that had to do with Old Testament stories that embellished these stories. And they also embellished the lives of the people that are listed. You know how in the Old Testament, if you've ever done a read through the Bible, there's genealogical listings? You know, and so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. And that these first century writings took this stuff and ran with it and made up all kinds of stuff. So it's possible that they were incorporating in the church, in their teaching, in the apostles' teaching, that they were incorporating some writings and some thinking that was going on in their day that was outside of the parameters of apostolic approval. I think that a lot of it was a lot like today. It's the way he uses the phrase, these are myths and endless genealogies. And look down in verse 6, he says, some have wandered away from these and they've turned to, look what he uses, meaningless talk. I think it's interesting. I think that the King James uses the phrase vain jangling. I don't know how you improve on that translation. They have turned to vain jangling. Talk, talk, talk. And I encounter people like this. Do you? You're talking to them and the conversation turns to spiritual things and they start saying stuff that is just like, where did you get that? That's not in the Bible. And I'll even say it to them. I'll say, wait a minute. How, how do you know? Where did you get that kind of stuff? And they're talking 
truths about the word and the way they think God is and what they think is going to happen and how they, where do you get that? And they'll say this. They'll say, oh, I just think it. Oh, you just made it up. Yeah, you made it up. It's not in the Bible. You know, your Uncle Jeb said something and you really liked it and you repeated it and messed it up and now you think it's true and you don't know the difference between that and the Bible. And I think that's what happened. I think they got careless with their Bible study. I think they got careless with the authority of, of the letters that the apostles were sending them. And they got careless with what Paul had carefully taught them around the clock, day in. And he said, tirelessly, I poured my life into you. And then he goes, and then they just kind of turned it away. And these ravenous wolves from outside, and these power mongers and vain men from inside, began to teach things, and it began to turn. It's interesting, isn't it? The Apostle Paul says, there's a need here. It is essential. We have this urgent call for doctrinal purity. Let me ask you a question. Who cares? What difference does it make if, you know, we got some Sunday school material that's not quite right? What difference, difference does it make if some guy comes in? Man, he's a good teacher. He, he teaches biology down at the junior high. He's a good teacher. He's a great guy. Let him teach. And then he starts to teach things. It's like, Man, where are you getting that stuff? What difference does it make? I'll tell you what difference it makes is because one little step after one little step and we have turned the ship and before long we have a group of people who don't know what is truth. Listen, friends, doctrine really matters. Doctrine is what God has spoken to us in his word so that we know how to make right choices and decisions with our worldview choices. With our daily living, it's all based on doctrine. It's all based on doctrine. Do you know, just this week at our church, I was thinking about a bunch of different things that have happened. A bunch of things. I had a girl in my office, college-age student. It's all messed up. Doesn't know what direction to go. Going to make some major life-change decisions. Do you know that you make choices about your direction of your life based upon your doctrine and your theology? Telephone rang, and Janet's uncle died suddenly Tuesday night of aneurysm, out in the truck, working. We had to go up and minister. Do you know that you view the death of a loved one, and you go and minister to grieving people? It's all about your theology and your doctrine. Monday morning, we had an elders meeting at Fellowship Bible Church, our monthly meeting. Do you know what one of the points on the agenda was? Hey, fellas, there's a real concern because they're no longer publishing the, 20, the 1984 edition of the NIV that I preach out of. They now only are publishing a 2011 NIV, and they've changed the pronoun rulings, and they've made it much more gender neutral. Does that matter? I don't know. What's our doctrine? What's our theology? What do we believe? Maybe it doesn't even matter. You see what I'm saying? We had... One of our personnel here on staff this week whose house got broken into and robbed. Praise the Lord that a police neighbor caught him, arrested him, got all their stuff back. But now they're in the middle of all the process. How do you respond to a person like that? What do you do with a person that's offended you, violated the law? That has everything to do with your doctrine, your theology your knowledge of God's word. What is God? How has he told us to interface? How has he told us to live? What is truth? What is reality? I was included on some emails this week. Two people 
Great people, mature Christians, long-time friends, love each other deeply, offended each other deeply. Do you know how you respond to that? It has everything to do with your doctrine and your theology. Praise God, they worked it out and reconciled. You see, doctrine and theology matter. Everything that you think that is important is based upon your theology and your doctrine. The most crucial doctrinal issue you're going to face is this. Who is Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Is he the son of God? Did he really hang on a cross? Did he really bury? Was he really buried for three days? According to the scripture, did he rise again? In other words, that means that because the scripture said it, it had to happen. It couldn't not happen. The miracle would have been had he stayed dead. Because according to the scripture, he rose again. Do you believe that? Does it really matter? Maybe it was just a spiritual resurrection. Maybe there's something to the swoon theory. Maybe that's what they were talking about in Ephesus. And then the next thing you know, they have no gospel at all. And then you can end up in places, and church history has shown us, that there's just incredible abuse of power when doctrine and theology is not protected and the word of God is not our guide and leadership doesn't have the stamina to stand up and say, no, you cannot teach that anymore. And here's what will happen. And even church-wide movements. Oh, it's not hard to find people that have given their whole lives to systems like this. Okay, tell you what. You want your granny to go to heaven? Not a problem. You pay some money, we'll light some candles, we'll pray, she gets to go to heaven. My friend, that's heresy. It's not true. In church history, it was so abusive the distortion of doctrine and the abuse of power by men who held leadership who were not confronted and say things like, get get this one. Oh, you give me some money and I'll give you permission to sin this week and it'll be okay with God. Wow! My pastor said, if I put money in the offering plate, I can go sin and it's okay with God. I mean, I'm overstating the case a little bit, but that's essentially the bottom line of the doctrine of the church. When they turned and got off, they're wrong. We have many people in our country today that that do extensive genealogical research for the dead. And they have a baptism in their church and they have a whole list of names and they'll stand in the pool and they will get baptized in the name of that person who's already dead so that they can go to heaven. That's heresy. It's not true. People believe it with all their heart. Do you know why it is important for the eldership to protect the doctrine and the teaching of the apostles and the word of God? is so that the souls of men and women are preserved and go to heaven based upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ through his shed blood of Christ who became our substitute that by no merit of our own and so that we know how to live and walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we end up living something that's totally other than the Christian life. And we end up believing something that is no gospel at all. Do you know how many people there are sitting in their church this morning who've been told they're going to heaven because of their good works? It's heresy. It's wrong. It's not in the Bible. It's because some teacher started getting excited about being a teacher. And it's meaningless talk. It's vain jangling. They don't know what they're talking about. It's not what Paul taught. 
And if you think the Apostle Paul didn't care about this stuff, you haven't read Galatians chapter 1 lately. Let's turn there. Galatians chapter 1. Would you turn there, please? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians, a letter by Paul to the church at Galatia. And what you need to understand with this letter is that Paul had been there. He had taught them that Jesus was the Messiah, that salvation came by grace through faith in Christ alone. For by grace you are saved through faith. He wrote that to the Ephesian believers, but he taught it also to the Galatian believers. You see, they were really confused. All their lives they had been offering the blood of lambs and, and, and sheep and goats so that through the shedding of the blood of animals, their sin would be covered in the eyes of God in this ritual Old Testament law. They tried to keep the law, and it felt really good to them. It felt like they were doing something that, that made God happy with them. That's what religion is. It's when I can do something, and God is really pleased to smile upon me. But you can't, and there is a joy in obedience, don't get me wrong. But it's, it's not cause for salvation. It brings no redemption from our sin. It brings no covering. And a holy God cannot look at sin. And the Galatian believers had departed from the true gospel, had gone back to the Old Testament to keep the law, and Paul writes them a letter. And you tell me if you think this is like a ushy-gushy love letter, sweet old Apostle Paul. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. See, if, if you don't guard your doctrine closely, you can end up with a doctrine that is no truth at all. It's not a saving grace at all. He says, it's no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Evidently, that's what Timothy was dealing with very much so in Ephesus. Perverting the gospel. Verse 8. Look at this language. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. How politically incorrect is that kind of talk? The Apostle Paul says, under the authority of God given to me through Jesus Christ, I preach to you a gospel, and if I return to your church, Paul says in this text right here, even if I return personally and I say to you, oh, hey, I was just kidding. I didn't get it quite right. I decided that I like it this way better. That I really do like that part about you giving money and I'll pray for your granny to get into heaven. I like that part. So you do that. He says, if I even come back to your church or if anybody else comes back to you and they give you a gospel that is anything other than Jesus Christ died as a substitute for our sin, was buried, the third day rose again according to the scripture and it's by grace through faith in Christ alone that you can save. Let them burn in hell. That's what he's saying. Let him be condemned. You see, it is serious. And here's why it's so serious. Because the souls of men and women and boys and girls and grampies and grandmas is on the line. Because you can believe something to be true and be totally wrong. And it costs something. It's like the old guy that gets on the ramp on I-81 
And he's on the on-ramp, and he's feeling pretty good about his driving that day. And the on-ramp goes down, and on he goes. And He didn't realize he was getting on the left side of the highway. You never do that. But anyway, he's down there. And listen, you can believe you're going the right way and that you're on the right ramp, and then you're in the on- incoming lane, oncoming lane. I watch for that all the time. I'm on the interstate looking down the road, and I think to myself, sooner or later, some guy's going to come down that ramp and come right at me, 70 mile an hour. He thinks he's doing just right. Going the wrong way, down the wrong road at the wrong time, and it'll cost him his life. That's what false doctrine does. You get on that slippery ramp, and you start heading down the highway, and you think, aren't we feeling good about ourselves here? Aren't we a great church? We just really love what we're doing, and we're going exactly the opposite direction of what God says you're supposed to go. And Paul says, I give you an urgent call with your pastoral authority to confront and I give you an urgent call to deal with these men for doctrinal purity. An urgent call for pastoral authority led Timothy to give an urgent call for doctrinal purity. The Apostle Paul does. Before I move off this point and we wrap up, let's ask ourselves a couple more questions about a couple things that are going on in the church today. We don't know for sure what these false doctrines were. I've referenced a number of things that people believe that are false. But let's bring it closer to home. Let's bring it into Bible-preaching churches. Let's bring it into the evangelical world where they hold open the Bible and they, they preach God's Word. It wasn't too many weeks ago that our guest speaker, Steve Marshall, referenced a young pastor out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, who wrote a book. It's called Love Wins. Sweeping the country. People love this book. You know why they love the book? And the guy stands up as a Bible-believing Christian because he says, I've studied the Bible and I have really good news for you. I have good news for you and you need to know that um, I have concluded from my study of God, His character, and the Scriptures that all people are going to end up in heaven because God loves, loves trumps, love trumps everything else. And God is a loving God and He could never send somebody to hell. And the book has caught on. It's sold in our Christian bookstores. It's very popular. It's got a website. People are saying, listen, listen, it's heresy. It's heresy. And the elders of the church need to stand up in those churches and they say, this book is not allowed in our church. You say, Pastor Van, wait, that's censorship, man. Absolutely it's censorship when it's contrary to sound doctrine. You will not teach it in our Sunday school class. It's not in the book. I'm not talking about in a critiquing manner. I'm talking about saying, People, what a great concept we have. What a great loving God we have. And it's not true. And I could give more examples. Listen, all through church history and even today, we have to be on full alert for sound doctrine in our churches. So the Apostle Paul calls to Timothy and back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And he says, I urge you, I urge you, to command. I'm not telling you to go, you know, hold their hand. I'm command them stop teaching this stuff. It's a call for urgent call for pastoral authority. It's an urgent call for doctrinal purity for them to no longer teach false doctrine. Let's move on quickly through this passage. He says, nor to devote themselves to myths And endless genealogies, these promote controversies rather than God's work. The New King James uses the phrase where the NIV says, these promote controversies. The New King James uses the phrase, these cause disputes. 
And what I see here is Paul reminding Timothy how important sound doctrine is because of the impact it will have on the church because once false doctrine comes in, guess what happens? The church divides. There will be schism in the church. So number three, there is an urgent call here in this text for congregational unity. There is an urgent call for congregational unity. It's not a fake unity. It doesn't work like this. Hey, we're going to have a Bible study. Can you come to our Bible study? Just come, and we're going to hold hands, and we're going to sing a couple stanzas of Kumbaya, and we're going to read our text, and then you share what you think God's Word means to you. What does it mean to you? And, and what does it mean to you? And we're just going to share what it means to us, and, this, and it might contradict, and it might not even be true, and it makes us feel good, and we go home. That's not the kind of congregational unity that Paul's talking about. The kind of unity that Paul is talking about is the kind of unity that comes when we're all focused on Christ and when the Word of God is being clearly taught. You see, and some of you have been there, some guy back in his Sunday school class begins to spout off his, his endless myths and meaningless genealogies and his jangling talk. And he's sharing his stuff. And the next thing you know, there's a whole group of people that are saying, hey, this is what we think. And the next thing you know, there's a group that tries to stand against it. And what happens? You know, have two, you have a division in the body. And sometimes the church will divide three times and four times and five times with different spearheads of doctrine and false doctrine that's going on. Listen, the true unity, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is what unifies us, isn't it? It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, or if you're slave or free, if you're black, if you're white, if whatever. The gospel is what brings us together, and, and it's the great equalizer, isn't it? It's the great unifier. And when somebody starts spinning off that stuff, it divides. It shatters the congregation. And the Apostle Paul said, listen, you want strong families? You want strong young people that will follow Christ? You better have a strong church. See, a church is something that we take for granted. It's kind of like our collarbones. My family and I stopped on our way to Beckley last week where I was speaking. And uh, a girl, a young girl, right, I must have just had my eyes, she flipped her vehicle. I looked the other way, but I stopped and we ran over there. And a young girl was in there and, and I held her head for 30 minutes waiting for the emergency personnel. And I told Janet when I finally got to the car, we were in the opposite lane. I ran clear over to the other lane. And I said to Jane, I said, I think she's going to be okay. I think she broke her collarbone. When's the last time you thought about your collarbone? You don't think about it. You break your collarbone, you're going to think about it. It all holds together, doesn't it? You kind of take it for granted. It's a little bit like your church. Your church, more than you realize, and Paul knows it, and Timothy knows it, and our sovereign Lord in His design knows it, that our church is a lot of what holds us together, but it can't be broken or we fly apart. And one of the most serious things that happens, I referenced two weeks ago, when there's schism in the church and there's not unity based upon our love for Jesus and our unity over the gospel, and we begin to fight and we begin to quarrel and we begin to spat and we begin to have schism in the body, I'll tell you who you lose. You lose the next generation. And they say, look at those people. They don't even know what the Bible teaches they don't agree on it. They don't love each other. Their prayers aren't being answered. They growl at each other. They talk behind one another. I am 
out of here. I'm out of here. And even when there's unity in the body, Satan has been winning great victories and pulling our young people away from the truth and the church. And so we must be a Christ-centered, loving body that's unified. Paul calls Timothy to congregational unity through sound doctrine. Let's continue. Which is by These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Verse 5, And the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these. What have they wandered away from? They've wandered away from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He's talking about the leaders in the church who've turned away from sound doctrine. They're doing exactly the opposite. Instead of having a pure heart in their ministry, how essential is that? Instead of having a pure heart, they have a divided heart. They have a heart that's turned away and they have ulterior motive for their ministry. Maybe it's to have their own little following. Maybe somehow in their mind they see themselves as intellectual and they want people to see them as filled with knowledge. But their heart is divided. They don't have a pure heart. He says, they don't have a good conscience. These people don't have a good conscience. They know it. Jude said the same thing that these false teachers evidently even know that they're doing wrong and they still do it. And they're conflicted in their conscience. And they have an insincere faith. We have all kinds of people in the world like this now. Sometimes I, I almost have to throw something at the television. Late at night, and we don't get very many channels, but we get some really weird ones. I don't know where they come from. And, and they'll have this service going on. And they've been doing this series for a long time on this one channel I've been watching. And it's something to do with this seed sowing principle. Do you know how you sow the seed? You've got to send them money. That's your seed. And God will multiply it. God will multiply it. He'll bless your life. You just send it to us. It makes you want to just spit, you know? Deceivers, charlatans with impure motives. Their only motive is so that they don't have to wash their own Mercedes-Benz and they can take it through the fancy car wash. And they're lovers of the world and not lovers of Christ. And their, their God is their own belly and their own pleasure. And they abuse people with the gospel. Paul says to Timothy, no go. What we have here, number four, is an urgent call for personal integrity, a pure conscience, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That, number four, is an urgent call for personal integrity. And then finally, number five, we have an urgent call for spiritual maturity. Look what he says. Some, verse six, have wandered from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. See what he said? They're guys, and they really, really want to be known as teachers of the law. The rabbi. They don't even know what they're talking about. That is an indicator of a lack of spiritual maturity when you don't have enough sense to stay out of it. When you don't even know that you don't know, you're a very dangerous person. And Paul tells Timothy, shut them down. Stop it. I command you to command them. I urge you to command them. Knock it off. And so, don't you think Timothy had somewhat of a dirty job to start out with? I mean, we're just getting into the letter. And the first thing he says is, go get in their face. Shut them down. 
How would you like to do that? An urgent call for pastoral authority. An urgent call for doctrinal purity. An urgent call for us to unify with the gospel, congregational unity. An urgent call for the personal integrity of our leadership, that they have a clear conscience and a pure heart and pure motives. It's why when you look over in chapter 3 that the Apostle Paul, when he gives this detailed list to elders, he says in verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Something about spiritual leadership that will mess with your mind. Urgent call for personal integrity and urgent call for spiritual maturity. Why does it matter? Because the soul's of our boys and girls depend upon it. There's only one gospel. What you do with Jesus is the ultimate question in your doctrine and your theological framework. But I'm telling you, as you face so many issues, as I listed earlier before, from personal conflict to someone breaking into your home, to the death of a loved one, to a spouse abusing you, Your doctrine and your theology are what you build your life upon. It really, really matters. Let's bow in prayer. As we close out, let's go to that most important doctrinal question. What are you doing with Jesus today, my friend? Have you dealt with that part of your theology? Have you admitted your sinfulness? That has everything to do with your theology and your doctrine, whether you even believe you're a sinner or if you think you're innately good on the inside. So the Bible clearly teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, no, not one, that any righteousness we can produce is as a filthy rag in the holy eyes of our pure Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why we come to Him in humility and in brokenness and we acknowledge our sinfulness And we recognize that only Jesus Christ in his humanity was sinless, in his deity was qualified to represent us on the cross to take our sin upon him. Transfer his righteousness over to us. But listen, you have to reach out and take that free gift. Admitting your sinfulness and believing that Jesus is the Christ that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. That he's the one who stood in your place. He's the one that went to the cross and paid the penalty before God for your sin personally. You accept it. That's the gospel. There is no other gospel. Have you done that, my friend? Don't play games and don't make up your own theology. Oh, I thought of it myself it'll condemn you to hell. You're holding God's precious word in your hands. Receive it. So, Father, may we have the courage to stand upon God's word, to stand for a pure doctrine. Give us us diligence in our study of God's word that we we would accurately understand it, that we would boldly proclaim it, and then that we would humbly obey it. 
Move in our hearts, Lord. Draw people to yourself. Bring conviction where we've turned away. Open our eyes to these realities. Help us to act in love in a unity that is based on Christ and the truths of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.